and welcome to the Constitutional Patriot Podcast, Supplemental Podcast, Tea Party Policy Chat. And in the Tea Party Policy Chat, we're going to be continuing with the topic that we covered in the last episode of the Constitutional Patriot Podcast, episode number 217, um, where we're talking about anti-Semitism within the Democratic Party. Um, we have uh, three videos that we're going to get to on that uh, on that topic today, and the videos um, they're they're long play, so there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, analysis going on. So let's get started on the today's episode of Tea Party Policy Chat, and here we go. Okay, so um, that was uh, new music for the Tea Party Policy Chat intro. I love it. It's like really cool. It's called Marine. (laughs) Okay, so what we're going to be doing today is um, we're going to be, I want to do a brief synopsis. Um, We were talking a little bit about um, the, the, the current philosophical viewpoint that there has been numerous, numerous, numerous anti-Israeli, um, anti-Jewish stuff coming from the Democratic Party. And, and it's very obvious because you could actually go back to the Obama administration. During the first Obama uh, nominating convention, they removed the support for Israel plank of the um, platform Okay, they removed it in committee. Okay, the committee removed it. Somebody motioned and they removed it from the platform. Okay, and then the the uh, the the platform was approved by the uh, by a vote by all the delegates. Then there was because then it got pub. Then it was made. Then it was public. Then it was public that. This is, you know, uh, uh, the official position, right? And the media, um, Fox News, was saying, hey, they removed the platform for support for Israel. And they were, and then they had people down on the floor and they were uh, and they were asking about it, and they said, "No, they don't support Israel at all. They don't, they support the Palestinians, and they, you know, there was all this anti-Israeli 
um, going on, and they were people calling saying bad things about Jews. I mean, it was like all over the place, right? And they said the the and it's like oh, it was it was getting out there. It was becoming a major issue. So what they do said so we can't have that. We have to put it back. So they had the chair, <laughs> and I covered this a little bit in one of my prior podcasts. The the the, the chair right the uh, of the the said we're gonna have they have what motion has been made to to for uh, a voice count for uh, replacing the uh, reinstalling the the support for Israel plank in the platform. All those in favor, aye. And there's like uh, all those opposed, nay. And it's like he says we can't. I can't hear. It doesn't sound. So it's like oh, they did it like three times, and it was you know. Oh, an idiot would say that, that that there was no nay. It was like, oh, highs, all those in favor for replacing it, uh, say aye. Um, there was like nobody. It was like hardly anybody. It was like, nay. And all those nay, nay. And there's a scream and nay, nay, nay all over the place. And he's like, okay, the eyes have it. And it was like, no, the eyes don't have it. <laughs> Clearly, the eyes don't have it. I mean, it was like you would have to be mentally completely unstable, which Democrats are, to think that the that it was the eyes had that vote. So they installed it. They reinstalled the platform, right? And um, to, for support for official recognition support of Israel on the platform, but it was clearly one hundred percent obvious that the vast, vast, vast majority of those delegates there at that convention were anti-Israel. It was very clear that they did not want that plank put back in that platform. But they did it anyway because it was a politically, because it was politically expedient, because they didn't want to have a risk of, of signaling to the Democratic Jewish community that they were anti-Israel, even though it's clearly obvious. You have to be brain dead not to realize that the Democratic Party is anti-Israel. Okay. And so, and then the same thing happened. The same exact situation happened at his re-election nominating committee. Right? So that's, that's what we, that is a history there in 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 the anti in all through the Obama administration, it was anti-Semitic, anti-Israel policy positions over and over again. I mean, I I've said this several times that during the Obama administration, on two separate occasions, I personally called the Israeli embassy in Washington D.C. to apologize as an American citizen for the insults of the president has made and the insulting attitude that he has had against both Israel and the prime minister. Because I found it absolutely disgusting. I think that, it, that more people should take these steps. More people should call out. More people should make these phone calls. More people should stand up and not let these, these, these minor uh, uh, symbols of racism, of anti-Semitism, of anti-Israel um, behavior and statements go unaddressed or un no action taken. Right? I think that I think that it should be a di that it should be something that is called out every single time. That that it, this because it's 
it's it's disgusting and it's wrong. Okay, that's what I'm going to go on that. So we're, first of all, what I want to do is <laughs> I have three really cool videos. And um, first I want to go with with this. Uh, first of all, there there's there is actually a video from a uh, Democratic congresswoman who is concerned about the anti-Israel and anti-Semitic tendencies within the Democratic Party. My question to you is, why are you a member of a party who has had such a flamboyantly uh, known and flamboyant history of anti-Semitism? Okay, so let's go. Has always brought both sides together in Washington, but there's been a disturbing change in recent years. A growing number of Democrats have started speaking out against Israel. CBN News Capitol Hill correspondent Abigail Robertson recently spoke with one Jewish Democratic Congresswoman about this dangerous trend. And the now, see, the thing is, what's in, what's what I find I find extremely in, in is extremely confusing is that the most ardent supporters the most ardent the most passionate the most um, intense supporters of Israel are American Christians are American Protestant Christians Southern Baptists Baptists Pentecostals okay Presbyterians these people value Israel because it's in the Bible to do so Okay, which I covered in the last episode, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God will bless the nations that bless Israel. Okay, God will bless the nations that bless Israel. So the Christians have been the most ardent supporters of the country of Israel. And the, and they do so they're with with passion and support and money okay much more than the democrats much more than even the jewish american jewish population from what i understand the stand that she's been taking even against members of her own party when Congresswoman Elaine Luria came to Washington in 2019, she never expected her first speech on the House floor would be standing up against anti-Semitic comments made by fellow Democrats. The first of many occasions she's... See, the, the, the Democratic Party, since prior to Obama, has, has always embraced the the victimhood of the Palestinians, and it's not the victimhood. It's like what it's like. It's like oh, they took the land. They never had land. Okay. <laughs> they they were kicked out of every country. They 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 never there never was a Palestine ever. Okay, that's the that's the historical fact. The country that is now Israel was made up of other country territories, not a Palestinian state. Okay. And it was actually a, a British colony. Okay. 
that's the realities of the situation. Defended Israel during her time in Congress. I believe that I speak clearly for all fellow Jewish, fellow Jewish veterans that this echoes of language that has been used to marginalize and persecute the Jewish people for centuries. Luria, a 20-year Navy veteran, tells CBN News she finds accusations of dual loyalty misplaced. I find it shocking um, that... Well, just to forget the dual loyalty bullcrap, okay? Now, here's, here's what I find interesting. This woman is a 20-year vet of the United States Navy, and she's a Democrat, okay? Um, okay, just that alone, um, why is she a Democrat? I mean, the Democrats have from, for, for, for uh, over a generation have been anti-military. The Democrats have been wanting to cut military spending, cut Navy fleets. It's the Republicans that want to increase the Navy, increase military spending, increase the size of the ships, increase the ships. Okay, so f just from that alone, if, for that aspect, I mean, don't be a Democrat, um, right? Because what do Democrats want? They don't want a strong U.S. military. You know, other members of the House can perpetuate these tropes and, and things related to dual loyalty. And add, she's surprised how often she's had to speak out against anti-Semitism. I always viewed that... The U.S. support for Israel was incredibly strong. Israel's our strongest ally in the Middle East, and that the support for Israel is massively strong within the Republican Party, the Republican, the red states, and it is it is it, it is without goes without question. Support for Israel, yes, given. Strong, given. Will we defend? We will. Will we fight and die for Israel? Yes, given. Okay. Without question, without without reproach, without without even an objection, that's the viewpoint of the Republicans of the conservatives. You know, the U.S. Congress um, was a place where that support was, you know, unanimous, and they've come to find that it, although it is broad and bipartisan, there are some very vocal voices that unfortunately continue to get louder. Um, that you know, we have to. The vocal voices that tend to get louder are also the, the increasing wing of the progressive part of the Democratic Party. And under the leadership of AOC and the squad, the progressive uh, wing, the progressive caucus, has increased in size, while the moderate Democrats, if there are any left, they are like unicorns, they're endangered species, if they exist at all, are almost non-existent. To make absolutely sure don't undermine um, that broad support that we have for Israel. Luria believes some in her own party would prefer to say Israel doesn't have the right to exist. They've said it clearly and publicly, and, you know, some of the rhetoric that has been used. Yes, they have said it, and they want to boycott, dissemble, and defranchise, or whatever. They want to basically shut down um, Israel and make it where it's no longer a state. They want to completely destroy Israel, and, they're in, and they openly support Hamas, Hezbollah, the, the Islamic Jihad against, against Israel. They openly support it. Recently, you know, referring to Israel as an apartheid state and, you know, just different things that really overlook the unique situation of Israel, the unique security situation of Israel and Israel's need to... Okay, so they showed some stuff on the screen. I'm going to go back to that because that's, that's important too.
Okay, Ilan Hormar tweet, bombing a school is a war crime, bombing a hospital is a war crime, bombing out outlets of a war crime, firing rockets at civilians is also a war crime. If we believe in human rights, we should hold anyone who commits war crimes fully accountable. And then it said, um, apartheid states aren't democracies. Um, well, see, here's the thing. Um, bombing out Bombing a school is a war crime. Uh, Israel doesn't do that. Bombing a hospital is not a war crime. That, um, but Israel doesn't bomb schools. Bombing new outlets, news outlets, is a war crime. Uh, Israel doesn't do that. Firing rockets at civilians is also a war crime. Israel doesn't do that. Who does all of those things? The Palestinians. The Palestinians organizations, Hamas, Hezbollah, and the PLL, they're the ones that do that, all of that. If we believe in human rights, we should hold um, anyone who commits war crimes fully accountable. Well, you're not. Are you holding, you want to, Ilhan Omar has, has said that she wants to remove Hamas as a terrorist organization. She wants to move Islamic Jihad off of the terrorist list. She wants to remove the Iranian um, support um, organization that supports these things from the terrorist list. This is what she has said numerous times. Okay, Apartheid states aren't democracies. I agree. Uh, they're, they're totalitarian dictatorships like, you know, Venezuela, Cuba, North Korea. Um, who Israel is a full-functioning democracy where everybody that lives there is a citizen of the country of Israel, gets to vote and 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 own property and and ha where you you are not cr killed if you're gay or or uh, or Muslim, you're allowed to practice your religion freely without hindrance. You're allowed to do that in Israel, nowhere else in the Middle East but Israel. Okay, um, Rashan Talib, uh, Talib has said, um, if you want to support a, uh, a ceasefire, then get out of the way of the UN Security Council and join other countries in demanding it. Apartheid in Chief Netanyahu will not listen to anyone asking nicely. He commits war crimes and openly violates international law. That is 100% bullcrap. 100% bullcrap. And for a third time, for millennials, Gen Zers, and those in the dumbassery of California, 100% bullcrap. Okay, so, so that's, 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 that's what's on the screen here on, um, for, those, uh, for those listening. Um, that's what these, there's three tweets from Ilan Omar, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, and Rashid Tlaib. Israel is an apartheid state and, you know, just different things that really overlook the unique situation of Israel, the unique security situation of Israel and Israel. Okay, first of all, let's get to the apartheid state part. Um, in the Constitutional Patriot Podcast, episode uh, 217, um, there was a video um, that is posted on Rumble. A link will be in the show notes. Um, that showed that we had interviewed Bill Maher interviewing uh, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and asked him, is, is Israel an apartheid state? He flat out said no, and it, it's not, because it's not. It's not an apartheid state. 
you basically don't know what the word means or you don't know basically common sense. You don't you have zero intelligence whatsoever if you think it is. You it just shows that you're a complete a complete incompetent boob. Moving on. There's need to be able to defend itself. Um, so I think that it is very Every country has the right to defend itself and against an aggressor nation. Every country has the right to defend itself against an aggressor nation. Like Ukraine is defending itself from Russia right now. Israel has the right to defend itself against ongoing attacks from Hezbollah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the, the elite guard of, of, Israel, of, of the Iranian government who is supporting these rockets and funding these terrorists and supporting these, these uh, martyrs who base suicide bombers who go and kill children in restaurants and schools. See, this is, this is, they have the right to defend themselves. And there are, I think that they are, they, the fact that they take such, such massive effort to basically have, to limit to almost zero casualties um, of collateral damage, they, they don't need to take that much. They, they, they take, they risk mission success because of, of, of the possibility of casualties, of, of collateral damage. So, you know, they, much more than, than, than is needed. They, they have the right to defend themselves. And, and saying that they don't and, and, and condemning them for defending themselves against rocket attacks at kindergartners and supporting the, the countries and the organizations that fire rockets at, kindergart at Jewish kindergartners, you are an accessory to a war crime. So in my viewpoint, every Democrat, every single Democrat that votes to, is, that does not con openly condemn these, these anti-Semitic activities from the squad um, and, and shut it down and censure them. Okay, these people should be censured. They should not have the right to speak on the floor. They should have be censured because of their racist statements. Very concerning when elected members um, in our Congress, you know, voice those, those types of opinions. Recently, eight Democrats and one Republican voted against providing $1 billion in funding to restock Israel's Iron Dome defense system after Hamas launched more than 4,000 rockets across the border last May. It is concerning that there were a, a small number of members who felt that um, they, they couldn't support um, providing Israel with the resources to defend itself. The, the Iron Dome is, is, is a U.S.-Israeli joint program to protect Israel from on, from ongoing, continuous, never-ending attacks by rockets. A few years ago, Luria sat down with Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib to voice concern about her anti-Israel rhetoric. I was hopeful that moving forward, um, that you know, she would change her tone, um, she and others, you know. And the, but unfortunately, you know, that group has actually grown um, both in numbers and um, in visibility. Luria says, as a Jewish Congress. The, the, she's underplaying it. The, it has, the anti-Semitism 
of the progressive the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is massively anti-Semitic. The progressive wing of the Democratic Party is massively anti-Israel. Okay, um, and this is the, the reason for for the reason that the people are so you know putting it aside. Well, they're Democrats, so it's okay. This is insane. There is no logical reason. If you are a person who claims to be opposed to anti-Semitism, then you would not be a member of the Democratic Party. This woman, she'll continue to fight anti-Semitism, and she hopes to help her colleagues understand the importance of U.S. support for Israel. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Abigail Robertson, CBN News. My question is, why is she still a member of the Democratic Party? Why is she still putting up with this crap coming from, the, from a party that is spewing such evil and hate? Oh, Congresswoman Lurie is remarkably accomplished so just early in her career in Congress. Uh, the number of bills that she's gotten passed, her rise to be the vice chair of the Armed Services Committee is really incredible. A 20-year Navy veteran. Uh, was actually accused of divided loyalty, that somehow her support for Israel brought into her question, into question her support for the United States. These are incredible things, incredible developments that we actually have to defend Israel's right to exist in the U.S. Congress. Um, this is sort of beyond belief. Okay, so now what we're going to do is we're going to look at this issue um, about defending Israel's right to exist. And I've been saying this all along, that, the, that you need to no longer be, if you care about, if you, if you want to stop anti-Semitism, if you want to stop hatred of Jews, then you have to leave the Democratic Party. And that's what this next video is about. It's called Jexodus, Encourage Jewish People to Leave the Democratic Party. So let's, let's go. President Trump slamming the Democrats for failing to take tougher action against Congresswoman Ilhan Omar's anti-Semitic remarks. The Democrats have become an anti-Israel party. They've become an anti-Jewish party. And a group of Jewish millennials called Jexodus agrees. They are encouraging Jewish Americans to walk away from the Democratic Party. The group says, quote, Amen. We reject the hypocrisy, anti-Americanism, and anti-Semitism of the rising far left. Progressive Democrats and far too many old-school Jewish organizations take our support for granted. Here with more on the movement is former Trump... I love that they had a symbol. Um, they had the Star of David. It was an American flag um, Star of David. It was beautiful. I love that. That was beautiful. Okay, moving on campaign staffer and Jexodus spokesperson, Elizabeth Pipko. Elizabeth, good morning. Good morning. Let's start at the beginning. Uh, Jexodus means what? Um, obviously, uh, it's a play on Exodus, but um, we left Egypt and now we're leaving the Democratic Party. Why did you... <laughs> they left Egypt and now we're leaving the Democratic Party. Oh, wow. That's such, such an accurate comparison, right? You, you, you left... You left... You left... Egypt, where their people were enslaved and killed and tortured um, with backbreaking slavery. And now they're leaving a party 
that actually encourages the same thing. A party that has embraced racism, slavery, a democratic party that has encouraged anti-Semitism, a democratic party that actually has supported um, organizations and countries whose sole purpose is to kill Jews, a democratic party who has a history of promoting anti-Semitism, and they're leaving. That's 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 I love that. That is so fantastic. And her name is Elizabeth, which is one of my favorite names. Actually, I have in my different books that I'm writing. I have three different characters in 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 books named Elizabeth. So it's actually one of my favorite names. Jexodus spokesperson, Elizabeth. Pipco. Uh, that's a cool. Pipco. That's cool. It's a cool name. Okay, Elizabeth, you rock. You rock. You decided to do this and start this movement. Um, I thought it was time. Obviously, we saw a lot of anti-Israel um, policies kind of start under the Obama administration, and it got worse and worse, and clearly we've seen it. It's been plastered on our TV screens the last... Yeah, one of the main anti-Israel um, uh, policies was the um, Iran nuke deal that Obama did, which a big part of it was a plane load of cash and gold um, that was flown into Iran and given to the Iranian government, which was used to buy rockets um, that was shipped to, that was sent to Turkey and shipped on flotillas to the um, um, shipping flotillas to the Gaza Strip where Hamas and Hezbollah used these rockets to fire into Jewish, into Israel, targeting hospitals, schools, and elementary kindergartens. You know, so so the Obama administration was complicit and as an accessory to the death of Jewish kindergartners. That's the party she's leaving. Very good, Elizabeth. Good for you. This month, there's anti-Semitism in the Democratic Party. They can hide it, they can do whatever they want. They fail to condemn it, and now right. it's there, so it's time. Elizabeth, how much... They don't fail to condemn it, they promote it. That's the reality of the situation. They just don't, you know, there's anti-Semitism statements, there's anti-Semitism policies, there are anti-Semitism attitudes, and it's just, well, they're not going to just say anything. Well, you know, people have a right to their own opinion. It's not that. They're actually encouraging it. They're actually supporting it. They're actually funding it. That's the realities of the situation. The Democratic Party is not just failing to condemn, they're, they're failing to stop by supporting that. That's the realities of the situation. Moving on. How much does this hurt the Democratic Party, the fact that it sounded like they, we were going to have a, a, a resolution voted on in the floor, non-binding, uh, perhaps with uh, Congress? Yeah, they couldn't even get a non-binding resolution passed to condemn anti-Semitism within the Democrat, within the House of Representatives. I mean, that's, they couldn't even put, they could not even get a resolution passed to where if you're, ma if you are a member of Congress and you're making anti-Semitic statements where you should be censured, losing your ability to speak in front of the House, losing your chairmanships or committee seats, Okay, uh, 
positions, your positions of leadership within the party for doing these things. That's what should be happening. But they couldn't even get a non by Basically, it's a waving of the finger. Now, now, naughty, naughty. They couldn't even get that passed. Why? Because support for anti-Semitism runs deep and wide. Runs deep and wide. This woman, Omar's name on it, and then at the 11th hour, because of all the pressure from the le party's left, they wound up not naming her, and it was not about anti-Semitism. It was just generally about hate across the board. Um, I mean, the scariest part, obviously, was not the original anti-Semitism. It was the lack of leadership coming into play when they were supposed to come into play, condemn what happened, and they, they failed. Mm -hmm. So not only did the anti-Semitism that started with Ilhan Omar get worse and worse, you know, by proving that she had supporters. She, well, okay, this is where um, burying the head in the sand from the media and basically the media not covering it, most people did not even know that during the Obama administration um, that there was massive anti-Semitism. Only those that would watch the daytime news on Fox News where they were actually during the daytime going to for, for the things that happened during the daytime at a, at a political convention, that's boring stuff. That's not the, 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 the fun stuff is what they show on primetime. Right, the prime time stuff where they have the speeches and the and the music and the videos and all that stuff. But during the daytime, they have like there's committee meetings and there's votes that the boring stuff that happens at a convention. That's what that's where that those stories were found. That's where the evidence that was was of of the massive, the massive amount of anti-Semitism occurred was during the daytime hours when other, when other people were at work and other people were doing other things and no one was watching. That's, that's, what, that's the situation here. So the vast, vast majority, even regular Fox News viewers, didn't see that part during the daytime, right? And they covered it a little bit at night, but they had so much stuff, other stuff that they had to cover. They, they did cover it, but it wasn't enough to where people actually knew all what was going on. So that's that's that my analysis of it, and there was people like really they said that they did that they were shocked and surprised. It's like yeah, go back and look at it. Look at it. In her own party, but when the leadership fails to condemn that, it shows that they are a party of anti-Semitism. You know, the president said it the other day. That's what's happening, and they can't deny it anymore. Now, Elizabeth, we were talking about this uh, attracting millennials, but is this for everyone? Do you encourage anyone who is Jewish and has voted Democratic their entire lives, and now you're asking them to join your movement and do what? Vote Republican now? Um, so anyone that's Jewish, but also anyone at all that feels that they've been told not to vote according to their own conscience and beliefs. There have been so many people that told me that they were pressured into voting a different way or not voting at all or made fun of for what they value. So anyone that feels that they haven't gotten to vote according to what they believe in, I think it's time for that person to stand up and do you know what needs to be done in 2020. Well, in uh, 2016, let's take a look at the results. Hillary Clinton wound up with 71% of the Jewish vote and Donald Trump got about a quarter. Do you see that changing in the next election, the uh, ratio between the Republican and the Democrat? Um, so we're obviously very realistic, but we're also optimistic. Under uh, President Trump, literally anything can happen. But um, also we know that the Democrats are currently helping us out. I mean, there's, they're proving our point. You know, They don't care about Israel. They don't care about the Jewish people. And the Jewish people need to show them that if they don't support us, we're not going to support them. So we know, obviously, that the Jews have overwhelmingly supported See, the, 
supported Democrats, but it doesn't mean that the Jewish vote should be discounted. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Uh, see, th this is this is one thing I can. Okay, that there, there is really no in my mind. Why are see the Democrats support abortions? The Democrats are encouraging and they infanticide. These things are not Jewish. Jewish people are very religious people for the most part, and re usually religious people are not in favor of abortion. Right? It's a it's a it's a it's a issue killer for them. That when you hear the president talk about his pro-Israel stance and meeting with Benjamin Netanyahu. For one thing, the people, the Israelis love Trump. Oh man, they're, I mean, he recognized, he, he recognized Israel's ownership of the Golan Heights. He moved the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Okay? He's increased military aid and spending to Israel. Okay? He, um, this is, he has imposed sanctions on Iran, massive sanctions on Iran, pulled us out of the Iranian nuke deal. These very pro-Israel, pro-Jewish policies that the Democrats hate, right? They hated the fact that he moved the, the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. They hated that fact. They hated it. Um, I have no idea. Honestly, I've never understood it um, after the president moved the embassy, which so many presidents, including President Obama and Bush, uh, promised to do that. I thought that there would be a shift. Obviously, I thought people would at least understand, like Jewish friends of mine would understand why I supported him, who didn't right. at first. And they didn't. They never changed their mind. They stuck to the narrative. President Trump is bad, and they refused to what change What do they that. say now? Same thing. Mm -hmm. There doesn't make any sense. They have Trump delusion syndrome. Okay, Trump delusion syndrome. So, um... That's that's what what I refer to as dumbasses to Democrats as heirs to breathing. Okay, dumbasses to Democrats as heirs to breathing. Now, um, now this is Israel um, Israel national news. This is this is um, Israel Israeli news. Ben Shapiro, and this is on the Tea Party policy chat. The Tea Party policy chat deals with domestic policy. But we're we're covering this in an aspect about what is the what is the, like the mindset. We're trying to figure out what is the mindset of the American Jewish community. What is the philosophical construct of which they operate on uh, as a as a as a as a cultural um, political um, norm within the community. That's what we're trying to identify. Is is there a cultural tradition and why and how does it start and and we're doing this too because you have to understand you have to be able to to look to understand the philosophical position of people and why they think the way they think okay you in order to you need to know what they think and what they what they're doing their actions but you need to understand the philosophical the political the cultural aspects that inform those actions, okay? And that's what we're trying to do here at the Tea Party Policy Chat. Well, shalom, everybody. I'm very honored to be this morning in Arut Sheva, Israel National News. And especially, I'm very honored to have you, uh, Mr. Ben Shapiro, on my side. Probably I was very, very well in the past if I'm glad to have you beside me today. And my first question is, you know, I'm a, I admit, I'm a person who is not very much black or white, and I don't like this dichotomic division we have right now. And then I see one of your books, many books, all fascinating, by the way. And in one of them, you say, 
why is it so important to win debates? Are they a threat? And uh, my question is, you speak about destruction over there in the title. Why, I mean, is liberals progressive? Are they the enemy? Uh, I don't think that... that See, here's... <laughs> okay, it's, it's Ben Shapiro. I, one of the things that I like to do is I like to go onto YouTube and I go, Ben Shapiro destroys in the search. I mean, he comes, and then he's giving, because he gives speeches all over the country at universities, right? And liberal professors and liberal students, he makes a presentation, he gives a speech, and then there's always a question and answer, right? And during these question and answer phases, they come up and they try to, they try to be smarter than him. Ben Shapiro is a pure child. He's a genius. I mean, he, he, I mean, he was in college as a child. He's like my grandfather. Um, my grandfather went from fourth grade. Instead of going to fifth grade, he went to college. And then in, um, in, in, in a year, he completed a junior college and transferred to Baylor University. He completed, um, before he was 18 years old, he had a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and a juris doctorate degree. And then at 18, he entered seminary. Um, he completed seminary, all the coursework for a four-year doctorate in theology and by way before he was 21. And he, at the same time, being a pastor, a full-time pastor at one of the largest Southern Baptist churches in Texas in his early, in, in, as, as a 20-year-old. So he never finished his dissertation to get his doctorate, in the, his Ph.D. in theology. Uh, from seminary, but he had he he could read, write, and speak Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. Um, and from what my grandmother was saying, um, he had a fundamental understanding of Aramaic. Um, and that's that's how brilliant my grandfather was. And Ben Shapiro is is similar in that aspect. I don't know if he has a full. I don't I don't know if he has an understanding of Aramaic. But he does speak Latin and Greek and Hebrew, um, and you know he is a very brilliant man. And he, when when these when these fools, these ignorant ignoramuses, try to one of my favorite ones. This is oh, it's so funny. My favorite Ben Shapiro destroys moment is when you had this this very effeminate, um, you know, girly man student He's, he said you don't have any advanced degrees in in women's sexuality uh, feminism or um women's studies what gives you the right to make these statements about transgenderism and and <laughs> and he goes he goes i don't need a master's degree in lesbian dance theory to know bullshit when i hear it I'm sitting there going, oh, that's so good. That was my favorite one. That's my favorite. I love that Ben Shapiro destroys. So that's one of my favorite things to do is I go on to Ben Shapiro destroys. And there's other ones too. I mean, there's a bunch of them. Um, Candace Owens and and there's a bunch of these people that go up there and they're teaching it. And, and they really make these dumbass idiot um, Democrats and and socialist college students and socialist professors look like complete idiots. It's so much fun. <laughs> that liberals or progressives are are the enemy as people, but I think that the ideas of liberalism and progressivism are extraordinarily destructive to the social fabric in, in the United States. I mean, the, the book that you're talking about, How to Destroy America in Three Easy Steps, 
the basic premise of the book is that in order to have a functional country, you have to have a common philosophy, you have to have a common, cultural, a common culture, and you have to have a common history. And progressives in the United States are fighting against pretty much all three of these things. The philosophy of the United States, which is rooted in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. These are we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and they're endowed with their creative certain inalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These fundamental rights that are from God are what the Democrats, the progressive, and the left are trying to destroy at every turn. And when I hear these things, it makes me think of that song, Send Me. Send Me. Think of, I want you to remember that song by Mercy Me, Send Me. Think about, if you know that song, that's, what I, that's, 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 that's this. These are things that the left in the United States sees as, as a problem. They see them as, as rooted in racism and bigotry and, and systemic discrimination. When it comes to the culture of the United States, that, that sort of requires you to, to at least speak the same sort of language. You have to, you have to speak in, in terms of facts. And, and in the United States, there's open debate over whether men and women exist caused by the left. I mean, that, that obviously is going to be tough to have a conversation with. Yeah, see, see the thing is, is the newest Supreme Court justice cannot identify, cannot identify the difference between a man and a woman. And, you know, uh, the, she's not a biologist, so she can't make a comment. What, what is the different biological differences between a man and a world? Okay, I'm going to explain it to you right now. Men have a penis. Women have a vagina. Okay, let's, let's, let's go that again. This, the difference, the biological difference between men and women... Men have a penis. Women have a vagina. That is the biological difference between man and woman. Okay? If you cannot identify, if you're asked, what's the difference between men and women? Well, basically, men have a penis, women have a vagina. If you can't come up with that, you're an idiot. Moving on. The people when words have, have no meaning. When it comes to history, the, the left in the United States believes that the history of the United States is an unending series of calamities filled with with brutality and evil. And again, you, you can't have a nation built that way. So I don't think that liberals or progressives are, are the enemy. I think there are areas in which they have important things to say about individual rights, for example, with regard to, to liberals, and specifically, specifically if you're talking about classical liberals. See, this right here he points it out, the different classical liberals. Okay, classical liberals. Um, first of all, let's, let's look at the, uh, the what... The, the term classical liberal. The term classical liberal is today's conservative. Okay, that's that's the that's the philosophical construct here is what we're talking about here, and and the the classical liberals are the ones that basically were supporting of the Declaration of Independence. The classical liberals were ones that were were fighting against the tyranny of Parliament against that was enforcing that on the. Um, on the colonies, okay, and the the reason the the thing talked about the anti-monarchy of the thing, but the reality is the situation, the way the government works. King George had very little power. He was not an authoritarian king. He did not have an absolute. He was not an absolute monarch. Parliament had all the power, just like it does now, okay. And so and so the 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 situation is is that is that um, it was Parliament. But they couldn't have it to where, because we were trying to form a republic, 
a democratic republic. So the Declaration of Independence was targeted towards um, the monarchy as the as the head of state. Okay, um, that's that's where the the head of state is, whereas um, the the head of government is the prime minister, um, but the head of state is the monarchy. Um, where we have it in, a, in our system, the head of government and head of state are the same thing as the executive and the ex head of the executive branch, which is the president of the United States. Okay, that's, that's the structure that we're dealing with here. But I, I, I digress. I digress, which I tend to do. Which, you know, but, but I digress in such educational ways. You learn so much listening to my digressions. Moving on. Um, but um, but the, the ideas of progressivism are extraordinarily dangerous to any social fabric in any country. Mm -hmm. But once upon a time, if you look at history, and I do believe that you write the future with the English of the past, and once upon a time, a person like Benjamin Disraeli or Theodore Roosevelt, a great American president, you would agree with me, would think that, I mean, progressive and uh, conservative can go hand in hand. Is it possible nowadays? No, I don't okay, first of all, see, the term progressive is, comes from Joseph Stalin, which was the creator which was had to do with communism, so moving on. I don't think so. I mean, the truth is that I'm not a huge Teddy Roosevelt fan, specifically because I think that his vision of progressivism, which was rooted in the idea that there would be an administrative state filled with experts who are going to create policy. See, see, this is what he's talking about is the New Deal, right? This is, the Roosevelt was, oh, the progressive president. Roosevelt wanted to create a bureaucracy government run by an administrative, non-elected administrators who were quote unquote experts who ran the country, who did everything, okay, that had all the power. And that is not a good thing because what's interesting is the situation that we're dealing with in with England right now is Liz Truss, who basically just resigned today, um, uh, is resigning from, from stepping down as prime minister. The problem that they're having in, that the Tories are having basically to roll back the bureaucratic aspect, it cut taxes and all these things, is that this, bu this, this bureaucracy of the British government, the British uh, agencies and the sub-agencies and all the bureaucracy that runs the government is so entrenched and so powerful that even the legislative, the head of government, has very little things they could do to roll back, to roll back and change stuff, right? It's massively powerful, and and, and it's it's so ingrained in their system and has become so extremely powerful. I mean, it even is back when they had the when the when London had the Olympics. Their opening ceremony, half their opening ceremony, was blessing the bureaucracy of their me medical system. The bureaucracy of their medical system, where what happens is if you were to get cancer in England, you would most likely die from it time it takes you to get, a tr to get treatment. There were people that would come here in America to get tested to see if they have cancer, right? Because you'd have to wait 6, 8, 10, 12 months to get, a, to get an MRI, Right here, every hospital has an MRI. You could go into the emergency room, and the doctors, oh, you have a lump. You need to get an MRI. They'll get you an MRI within one day. At every at any hospital in the country, in America, where to get that MRI, you know, you're gonna we're gonna schedule for one. Can you come back in five months? 
oh, you have a lump. Come back in five months and we'll see if it's, and we'll see what it is. And then, you know, well, then it was, oh, well, too, sorry, your breast cancer metastasized and you're going to die now, now at stage four. That happened a lot, a lot, a lot. Okay, so this, this, and the same thing has happened in Canada. There is an entire industry of people coming from Canada into the United States for medical treatment. There's buses of people coming across the border all the time, right? They come here for medical treatment, and they pay out of pocket, and they, and they do it that way. Because if they don't, they're going to die. Policy, yeah. and that the American people should sort of put aside their, their rights to the extent that the bureaucrats and the experts should, should run things. He was the precursor to Woodrow Wilson, who I think was one of the three worst presidents in American history. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I'm not a big Teddy Roosevelt fan, um, but the, the sort of... I will not tell him. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but the, the idea that the, the right and the left can't have a conversation anymore, that, that is a new thing. Uh, so the, that, the, the idea that if you are on the left... See, the thing is, when you talk about the idea that the right and left cannot have a conversation is a new thing, that's because even though, even though the left and the right back in the day didn't agree on how to do things. Something, the way you want to do things is going to be destructive and harmful to the country, but at least you have the same end goal in mind, right? Your same general direction. We want to move somewhere north, but how? But where north, who, how, what north? You know, there's no fixed point, but somewhere north. Th that's something you could do. We'll just, we'll just move north together and and we'll, we'll find out what happens when we get there, right? Now it's like, you know, the part of the country wants to go north, part of it wants to go south. They're not even moving in the same direction. So you can't talk about them, how, what you're going to do when you get there, how are you going to get there. The, the, those how-to thing conversations are completely impossible because you can't have a how to, how are we going to get there if we if you're not even going on the same same general direction okay so that's what he's talking about when he's when he's talking about that aspect of it moving on you, you literally cannot get in the same room with somebody on the right and have an open conversation without attempting to wreck the person on camera. Uh, that, that's, that's a major problem. So but censorship has become a huge but problem. But how can we live like this? I mean, intellectual debates, you must, I mean, on the contrary, accept the idea of the other. I mean, do we live in an era where it's not possible? Uh, I think that that depends on the left. So I've said for a long time, I think that the future of the United States rests not on whether people like me speak. It's really more on whether traditional liberals, people who disagree with me on taxes, on health care, on social policy, whether those people are willing to tell the hard left with whom they agree on policy that it's still important to have a conversation with people like me, or whether they decide that they would rather get their policy done by working with the people of the left and then shutting the door to everybody else. And that's an open question right now, because a lot of liberals have been intimidated into believing that if they even have... See, that, that I, think, I think this is where, yeah, it's an open question because they claim, they claim to want to be working proactively. They claim they want to work across the across the aisle. They claim they want to be a unifier. This is what Biden said. He's, I'm going to be a president for everybody. I'm going to unify the country. And what has he done is the exact opposite. What they claim is one thing. And what they do is another. And it makes me think of, it makes me remember what Harris Faulkner said about Maya Angelou. When they show you what they, when, when I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, when someone shows you who they are, believe the first time, believe them. Okay? 
And that's what it is. They're showing us what they are. They're showing us, the Democrats are showing the world, showing the country, showing the conservatives, they have no interest in working with conservatives. They have no desire to work with conservatives. They have no need to work with conservatives. They'll do it on their own, and they don't even want to talk to you. But, the, the, but then publicly they say, oh, we're working with them. It's them who's not working with us. It's, this, it's basically a shuffle bullcrap game is what they are. And, and that, that's my viewpoint moving on. Have a conversation with people on the other side of the aisle. This makes them bad. It's more important that they get done what they need to get done in terms of ramming the United States to the left, even if that means using mechanisms of social media or traditional media to shut down counter narratives and to, and to basically end debate before it begins. <laughs> See, the ending the debate before it begins and shutting down the, the counter narrative, that's, that's censorship. That's, that's uh, uh, shadow banning. That's basically deplatforming like I have been. I've been deplatforming on YouTube. The Constitutional Patriot Podcast YouTube channel is no longer. The Constitutional Patriot yep, um, Podcast um, YouTube channel does not exist. It has been permanently deleted and banned from YouTube. My, con my, my account on LinkedIn where I would talk, where I would post about um, my positions on, on, is on business issues and my podcasts on LinkedIn um, would be, I've been permanently banned from LinkedIn. These platforms that are shadow banning and banning me because of my political viewpoint, where on those same platforms, the, and on LinkedIn, there were people posting things that were anti-Semitic, people posting things that were openly racist against white people, but they were from the left, and pro, they would be pro-CRT uh, or pro-Black Lives Matter, and they would be able to, to stay. These, 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 and they, they, these things that would be openly racist, all I said, all I posted and how I was banned is I said, I, I said this, I said, natural immunity for COVID-19 does exist, according to several countries and scientific studies. That's what I said. And for that, I was banned from LinkedIn. And for that, I was, I've had posts deleted off of, off of Facebook. And that and my other political, conservative political stance, everything backed up by news media from the Epoch Times, the Washington Post, the National Review, Fox News, Newsmax, and other news agencies around the world, I was permanently banned from YouTube. So this is the realities of the situation that we're dealing with. Okay, the realities. Before continuing and developing what's happening in America, in Israel, I would like to ask you a personal question. You know, I, before seeing you this morning for this interview, I watched, you know, I watched a few of your debates, and sometimes you seem like uh, someone who uh, believes in suicide. I mean, when you go to American colleges, my God, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I feel for you, honestly. And my question is, do you enjoy it? Uh, so, yes and no. I, 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 enjoy, I enjoy speaking to the students a lot, because a lot of them don't get the opportunity to be exposed to these ideas. Uh, I like exchange of ideas. I think that it's fun. Uh, I, I obviously, like any other person, I'm not in favor of walking into more dangerous situations, and I find it amazing and annoying that I required 600 police officers to speak at, at UC Berkeley, for example. I also tend to be sort of... 600 police officers to have a speech at UC Berkeley. 
UC Berkeley was supposed to be the university of free speech, right? They were supposed to be open to new ideas and alternative thinkings, except if you're a conservative. They want to kill you. And the, the administration of the university did nothing about it. The, 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 Union, the, the Republicans that brought him on there, the college Republicans at UC Berkeley, which basically themselves have to wear, have to live in hiding because fear for their own lives, they had to bring in private security police forces and force the police to protect him because the university would not do it. This is the situation that we're dealing with here, is the left are encouraging violence the left is encouraging violence against conservatives. Now, what, how do we do this? Well, let's let's look at the history of, of left violence, the recent history. We, uh, there was a baseball game, and and the Republican team was playing, and a Bernie bro, a supporter from Bernie Sanders, a communist, started killing a bunch of people and and severely wounding, almost killing the mi minority whip. Um, Luckily, thank God, he survived. Oh, and then there was police, Black Lives Matter um, people going and killing numerous cops on YouTube videos, which were posted on YouTube um, and was not taken down, where basically if you say that the election, the election fraud exists, your video is removed, but you can actually have a video of a Black Lives Matter protester walking up to a police car and killing two police officers. That video is allowed to be shown on YouTube. And so these types of things, okay, the violence comes from the left. The, in the, uh, the past couple of weeks, there's been, what, 13 police officers killed in, what, two weeks? All or coordinated. It has to be a coordinated thing. You have organized theft, massive crime in big cities. You have all of these things where they they take purposes by George Soros. These left are purposely passing policies to destroy this country. Okay, there was an assassination attempt against a member of the. Uh, of the Supreme Court. An assassination attempt against a member of the Supreme Court and still the Democrats refuse to pass extra legislation to provide security for the families and the Supreme Court justices. Because they want them dead. They encourage this violence. And then at the same time, what does the left do? Um, it, has, it, it basically aids and, and abets um, and is an accessory to illegal immigration, drug trafficking, sex trafficking, child trafficking. A vote for a Democrat is a vote for promoting of drug dealing and promotion of sex trafficking and child rape. That's my viewpoint moving on. Believe it or not, a, a go-along-to-get-along kind of person. I actually don't enjoy confrontation all that much. I'm, I'm good at it when, I, when I'm forced to it. But whenever I have the option between having a discussion and a debate, I always pick a discussion. And so, for example, one of the shows that I do is called the, the Sunday Special. When I do the Sunday Special, yeah. I have people on who are on the left 
And we'll have like long conversations where we go really deep. I had Andrew Yang on. We discuss universal basic income. I don't like universal basic income, but we go for an hour. And it's very cordial and very nice. I'll have a lot of people on the left on that show. That's a very different thing from going into a, cir into a, a circumstance where everybody is looking to punch. If you want to punch, you can. I'll punch you back, and that's okay. Like, but, but I usually allow the person who I'm discussing or debating with to, to pick the weapons that we're going to use. Are, are we going to go at each other with rapiers, or are we going to just hit each other in the head? If we're going to hit each other in the head, we can do that. It's just not going to go that well. But if we take the example of AOC, for example, or refuse to debate you, I think... See, the thing is, here's the thing, is people, he's challenged people to come debate him. And because, you know, he's so brilliant, he can marshal the facts and the details from memory um, in, on a vast number of uh, topics and a vast number of facts. And he can marshal that information at a snap of his fingers and have it at his need whenever. He, and he is so precise. He is so articulate. He is, he is the... I love watching him debate. He he can complete when he's debating. He completely destroys his opponent. It's beautiful. It is a it is a work of art. It was a hey, she, talks, she, she, she accused me of catcalling her. Yeah, yeah. I remember. And as uh, much as I recall, you never did it in your life. As much as uh, yeah, catcalling, yeah, not not not, really my, not not my thing. <laughs> the keepers that I'd give away. So yeah. issue why? It's because she doesn't respect you, or because she's afraid. I mean. I would say both. I mean, I, she doesn't want to debate me because I don't think that it would go particularly well for her. I don't think that she has the capacity to defend her own ideas. In fact, I don't think she really has a lot of ideas. I think she has impulses and Instagram slogans. Uh, but, yeah. but uh, you know, as far as lack of respect, I think that there's a, a wing of the left that, that just believes that everybody who disagrees is an inherently bad person, and just a bad human being. This is the only reason why you would disagree with them in the first place. So why would you give them the time of day? Why would you even sit with them? Why would you even be spotted? See, this is... See, I was in college, and... Uh, I, I would love to get into debates with professors and, and other college students about policy and topics and politics and religion and all kinds of things. And um, I, remember, I remember I was in, um, was in the pub there at Fresno State, and I was ha there was, it was, we were all having Guinness, and it was really crowded, really, really crowded. And one of the professors um, that was, I was taking, uh, I was taking um, American history, uh, American history since the Civil War with him. And, because uh, I needed it for my teaching credential class. And I already had my bachelor's degree because I took American history up to the Civil War for my, for my undergrad, for my bachelor's degrees. But I had to take the other one for my history uh, credential for my history teaching credential. So I'm taking this class. I already have my degree, right? And I'm older than the teacher. I'm in my, I'm in my uh, mid-30s, early 30s. He was, he was in his late 20s. He was like 27 years old, 25, 27, something like that. And, and he comes up there. We're having a, we're having a beer, and, um, Guinness, and there's no, t no place for him to sit, right? And I, there was three of us at the table, and we had an empty chair, so we waved him on over and had him sit down. And we were debating politics, like we always do, because we were all poli-sci majors. And so, um, and he had a he he had his uh, PhD in in history of business, something about business cycles, um, but it as it was business history, something related to business. Um, I think it was the history of business economic cycles or something of that nature. 
was is what he did his dissertation on and stuff like that. So, and and it got in. A, he said, "Scott, why are you a Republican?" And I said, "Well, why are you a Democrat?" You know, and we got talking about you know, and and then, and then someone said, "Well, because Democrats, therefore." Um, you know, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. That's their viewpoint when the Republicans are in power. And I says, well, have you even looked those numbers up? Right? I'm a political scientist. I go with numbers, data. Give me data. Give me data points that proves when Republicans are in power, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Give me data to prove that. Well, guess what? That data does not exist. What does exist is... Bureau of Economic Statistics that shows that the poorest two cohorts um, during any Republican administration, their mean income goes up. And during every single Democratic administration, their mean income goes down. So a factual statement is when Republicans are in power, the rich get richer and the poor get richer. That's a his that is an economic fact and an accurate statement. And what a true statement is, is when the, when the Democrats are in power, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. That's an actual factual statement when Democrats are in power. Okay. And you can check that data out at the Bureau of Economic Statistics. And it's, it's, it's right there. It's public record. It's public information. And if you actually check it, you will see that be, and see, the, the issue is rich get rich no matter who's in power. Rich get rich no matter who's in power. Why? Because money makes money. The question then becomes, what happens during Democrat administrations, how the rich get richer? And what happens during Republican administrations when the rich get richer? Okay, that's the interesting fact, to, fact here. During Democrat administrations, they send their money overseas. Rich get rich by buying by buying assets overseas. They invest in foreign foreign stock markets. They in uh, hedge funds, property, real estate, those types of things overseas. They put it in long term securities and they make interest. They make capital gains income. Okay, that's how they make their money. Whereas when Republicans are in power, you have deregulation, you have tax cuts, which basically it gives the rich the capability to expand factories, hire more people, expand their businesses, start new businesses, and that is how they get rich in those aspects. Well, those activities that are growth activities, when you have tax cuts, you have expansion of business opportunities and starting new businesses and expanding factories and new business lines and new products, new product development, these types of things that grow the economy, hire more people, increase the number of jobs, increase payroll for the medium and low income groups where they make more money and you have a growth economic you have an economic growth of your economy. That's what happens when Republicans are in power. See? What we have when Democrats are in power, what we have right now inflation, high gas prices high oil high prices per oil reduction in fossil fuel in, in fossil fuel production in cutting of oil supplies all these things hinder and hurt the economy but see that is their goal because they want to destroy capitalism Justin Trudeau 
said that the that COVID-19 would be the catalyst for which the left can use to destroy capitalism and institute a worldwide communist utopia. That was Justin Trudeau's statement. And he, he is a complete idiot and an authoritarian dictator to boot. Okay, so moving on. So that that's that's something to think about with them. And that's a real problem because the truth is I have a lot of friends who are on the political left in the United States. I have a lot of people who I hang out with and people who I text with and it, it creates sort of what, I, what I've called before the happy birthday problem, which is, mm -hmm. you know, I'll, I'll say happy birthday to anybody online, right? I have 4.5 million followers on Twitter. If, you know, people on the left have, have birthdays, I'll publicly say happy birthday. With people on the left who are my friends, they'll text me on my birthday, happy birthday, but they'll never post on Twitter, happy birthday, because that might be acknowledging that I was born so a woman can, and I'm so, a human being. So you, so. You, can, you can do it. Yeah, exactly. You can do it. <laughs> to be shaming, to be shaming nowadays. <laughs> Before we go and we take a plane and cross the ocean, although you did it already and land in Israel, I mean, when you go to a college, for example, and you defend them, I and you defend for them the, something that is impossible to defend when it comes to uh, abortion, climate change, uh, I don't know, race theory, or all those mm -hmm. subjects, is defending Israel still the most difficult thing to do in colleges or no? It's definitely one of the harder things to do uh, because most of the students either don't know anything. See, this right here I find absolutely disgusting. It is defending Israel on a college campus is hard. That should be the easiest thing to do ever. But the society of colleges, the society, the culture that has developed under the communist-controlled education system is disgusting about the topic. Like abortion, people actually know something about or think they know something about. Race, people have constant contact with. The thing to understand about you know, the, the, the topic of Israel on campus is the vast majority of students literally know nothing about this. I mean, it's, it's a very small cadre of students who care or know about Israel. It tends to be the Muslim Student Association on the one hand, and then maybe the Jewish Student Association on the other. The Muslim Student Association usually tends to be pretty radical in favor of the disestablishment of the State of Israel. The Jewish Student Association tends to be very much in favor of iftar dinners uh, and, uh, and not necessarily defending the State of Israel. They're very much along the lines of let, let's all get along, and if that means that I have to talk about how Israel may or may not be justified, they're very conciliatory in ways that I, I don't really mm -hmm. agree with. I remember when I was on campus, went all the way back to when I was 16 at UCLA. Yeah. One of the things that got me involved in politics was, was defending Israel. I mean, literally, I was a, a philosophy major, not really doing politics, and when I saw an editorial in, in the paper at UCLA comparing Ariel Sharon, who's the Prime Minister, to Adolf Eichmann, that's what got me involved in politics. I walked into the, the office over at the editor-in-chief and I said... Okay, so I'm going to end it here. Um, basically, he's saying that the, the, the Jewish students are, are basically fearful to defend Israel. They're very conciliatory, very let's just get along, kumbaya, you know, let's all have, you know, let's all sing Kumbaya, let's all, you know, can't we just be friends and sing songs from Sesame Street? That's the, you know, um, I'm, and he, his aspect of where he got into politics because of it. Now, I think that the, the, the thing is, is that a lot of people, it takes internal strength, internal fortitude to, to go to, to do that to take a minority position, even though it's right, and to stand up to everybody and be attacked from everybody. That's hard. That's hard, okay? 
and a lot of people don't want to do it. They don't want to, no matter what it is, yeah, they are right, they're right to do it, they want to stand up, they don't want to. They don't want to take the risk. They don't want to take the personal attacks. They don't want to be out there by themselves against a torrent of people wanting, hating them. Right? This is where I said that song, uh, Send Me. Right? From Mercy Me. Okay? And in the next episode of the Tea Party Policy Chat, we will look at the song, Send Me. Who am I? Send Me. Who will I send? Send me. We're going to look at that and at the and that conceptual framework and how that relates to standing in the breach against evil. That's how I get from it. So thank you for listening to the Tea Party Policy Chat. God bless you all. God bless America. And goodbye.